you've got a Bible, turn to the book of Luke. If you don't, I'm going to read the story today, and uh, I think you'll be able to follow along. It's pretty easy to follow along. And we're going to finish up our series of messages called Why in the World? And we've been asking this question that is uh, really at the heart of the Christian faith. And it's simply this. We believe as Christians, if you're not a Christian here, you don't necessarily have to believe this. If you are a believer in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is one of the strongest beliefs we have. It's what sets us apart from almost every other religion. It's what makes us unique. And it is this. We believe that God became one of us. In fact, in John 1.14, we believe this because an eyewitness named John who was there wrote this and said the word, talking about in that day he was writing to a Greek audience, uh, uh, the concept of God, the concept of the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the word became flesh. He had flesh just like you and me. He had fingers and toes. He had blood running through it. He, he, he grew. It tells us in Scripture that he grew, that he started out as a baby, and that he dwelt among us, that he lived around us, that he moved into our neighborhood. That he didn't do this from afar. It's not like somebody just pouring money into a situation. He put himself in the midst of the situation and lived in the midst of it. And he dwelt with us. He lived with us. He encountered the things that we will encounter. He lived in the way that we would live. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Over the last few weeks, what we've been really asking the question is, so why in the world would he do that? Why would Jesus, why would God come to us as one of us and live as one of us among us? And we've talked about a couple of reasons for that. And, and we talked about, first of all, that he did that to demonstrate and to communicate who God is. To demonstrate and communicate who God is to us and what he's like and give us the characteristics of it. We also talked about the fact that he came in order to elevate the dignity of the individual. Today we're going to talk about this. The central reason that God came to be part of our world as one of us, and the simple answer is, why did he come? He came because of you. That's it. You see... Over time, God's people had moved farther and farther away from God and more and more towards a structure about which they thought God was. Now, in our day and time, we call that religion. And really, if you want to put this in a different term, why in the world did he come? Not You could say you, that's the simple way. A second way to say this is he came to put religion in its right place. You see, there is a place for religion in our world. Religion's a good thing. It helps us, and not just Christianity, it helps us to answer questions. It helps us to think about things. It helps us to put, you know, it's a mystery, this world that we live in. There's confusion, there's chaos, there's things that we don't understand. And religion helps us to kind of put it into boxes and to, to get hangers to hang it on and to, to get ways that we can kind of systemize it and think about it and answer some of those questions that are hard to answer. Like, what happens when we die? And how are we supposed to live? And, well, which way should I go? And what's the decision I should make? And how should we go? And how should we act? And religion helps us to think through that. The problem is, in Jesus' day, and truth is, sometimes in our day, sometimes religion takes on more importance than it's supposed to. Part of the reason Jesus came was you. To put religion in its proper place. To put it where it's supposed to go. And to remind you that His love and His concern is not about 
what you do, but who you are. You see, when religion gets out of place, when it gets to first place in our lives, it causes issues. I mean, really, when religion takes first place, it begins to flex its muscles. It begins to show its strength. And the way that it does that is it sacrifices mercy and grace in order to make sure the rules are followed. Look at Luke chapter 7, if you have a a Bible. This is Jesus, and in verse 36, Jesus is going to a dinner party. It says one of the Pharisees, now just real quick, are the Pharisees... For Jesus or against Jesus? You all kind of whispered that like, I think I know the answer, but I'm not real sure. Are they for Jesus or against Jesus? They're against Jesus. These are people that are trying to find something to trip him up. These are people that don't really believe he is. Now, there are some Pharisees that are for him, some Pharisees that they called secret disciples, and they're following from afar, but most of them are trying to trick him. And it says that one of them invited him to eat with him, and Jesus says, okay, I'll come. He reclines at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, anybody here talk to yourself? Mm Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. The problem is I don't understand myself all the time. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, in other words, if this is who he, if this guy, if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is a man of God, if Jesus is a prophet, if Jesus is who he says he is, he would know who this woman was, what she was doing, a sinner, he'd never let it happen. Here's what happened. This woman broke all the rules. Now, she broke all the rules probably before she got to this point, but she especially broke the rules with her interaction with Jesus. And the Jewish law and the Jewish religion and the Jewish thing said, if you do that, God doesn't like you anymore and you are ostracized, you're cast out, you're no longer part of the group, you're gone. And so they look at this woman and they say, Jesus would never let him touch him. She would never let that happen. She's one of the ones that it doesn't, she's not worth the time of day. She's not worth anything. She has broken the rules. She's a sinner. Now, in their day and time, sinner could mean a lot of things, but more than likely it meant that she was promiscuous and she had a reputation around town. And when religion takes the place it's not supposed to, Mercy goes out the window. And so when the Pharisees saw this woman, they didn't see a woman. They saw a sinner not in need of anything but punishment. This week, I started to think to myself, I wonder what this woman thought that God thought of her. In fact, I heard a pastor one time say, if you, if you want to know kind of where you are in your spiritual condition, just ask yourself this question. What does God think about when he thinks about me? I mean, you do that in your own mind right now. What does God think about when he thinks about you? The same pastor that mentioned that question talked about that he had done that time and time again with people. And he said, usually the first thing that comes out is the Sunday school answer. You know the Sunday school answer, right? I heard down in our children's group today, there was a, a, a lost dog. Not like a real dog, like a stuffed animal dog. 
And they started asking, does anybody know whose dog this is? And the kids thought it was part of the um, lesson for the day. And so they started naming all kinds of stuff. And eventually one of the kids said, Jesus dog. Because, you know, in Sunday school, Jesus is always the right answer, right? And so he would ask this question and people would generally go, oh, he, he loves me. He, he cares for me. But as he got into it and said, let's, let's move past that, let's move past that. He said the most common answer he heard was this. When God thinks about me, he's disappointed. He's concerned. He's upset. And they look at their lives and they think of all the times that they haven't met what they think God would want them to do. And they think the only thing he could think about me is that he's disappointed with me. This woman had broken all the rules. In fact, when she comes to Jesus, she breaks rules right there. First of all, she barges into a men's lunch or dinner party. She wasn't invited. Nobody asked her to be there. She barges. And I probably would have been, this probably wouldn't have been inside. They would have been eating outside. Sometimes they would eat outside at a table where their discussions could be heard so that the community would come. And so they probably were outside. But she comes and she, first of all, interrupts the party. She's crying. Now, I want you to get the scene. She is crying so much that so much water is getting on, or tears are getting on Jesus' feet that she feels like she's got to wipe them up. She had anything to wipe them up with, so what does she use? And I want you to think about this scene. Now we read this and talk, oh, it's sweet. This is Jesus. If you were sitting there at a table eating and some woman is crying to the point of needing to wipe off the feet and she uses her own hair, what are you going to think? I can tell you what you're going to think. Nasty. Right? Nasty. Well, they would have thought nasty, but they would have thought worse than that because in our society, no woman that wasn't your wife ever touched you, especially an exposed part of your body, like your feet in this instance, and in that society, a woman never let her hair down except in the privacy of her own home with her husband. Otherwise, it would have been disgraceful. She's breaking all the rules. And this Pharisee is like, he doesn't know who this is. How can it be of God? And he, he, even, he doesn't know who she is. What she's doing is unacceptable. She's not keeping the rules. And here's the problem. Can I just be real honest with you? The problem with religion and the problems with rules and the problems with laws is they break down when real life comes. And we're guilty of this as preachers. I'm guilty of it as a preacher. Sometimes we'll come and we'll talk about the three things to a successful marriage, the four things to a successful home life. Then you'll go home and you'll try them and they don't work. Here's just five tips to making your money go right. And you go and you look at your bank account. I've done all five and it's still in good. Because you know what gets in the way? Real life. And you know what it does? It drives people that like rules absolutely nuts. Generally, in a family, one of the spouses is a rule follower. Everything's got to go right. And they go nuts when it doesn't. And the other one's kind of, eh, be all right. Everything's good. Right? I see pointing going on. No pointing necessary. And here's what I'll tell you. There comes a time when people are more important than the laws. And what the story here is about to show us is that Jesus came to tell us that you're more important than the law.
than the rules, than religion. I read this week about reading some stuff, looking forward to a, a series that we're doing about relationships coming up after the new year. And was reading some stuff about parental relationships. I heard this guy say that, that the best parents break their own rules. And he said, for instance, you know, he said, there, there are parents that think if we'll just get the rules in place and we'll follow and everything will be great, everything will be great, everything will be good. He said, what you'll have is you'll have kids that are absolutely orderly, but when they leave your house, they say, I'm never coming back. But he said, the absolute best parents break their rules. He said, for instance, bedtime is at 8 o'clock. But tonight's a special night. We're going to go to 9.30. All right, I know that I said that you have to eat all your food before you eat your dessert, but tonight we're going to reverse dinner and we're going to eat ice cream. Anybody ever had a reverse dinner where you eat your dessert first? Some of you need to do that. It'll change your life, all right? And for the sake of the kids, sometimes you need to say, I know I made a rule, I know this is our rule, but right now there's an exception to the rule because I care about you and this is something we're going to do. Now, it cuts both ways. Kids like kids out here are like, yeah, go get them. Talk to mom and dad, but it cuts both ways. Because sometimes what that means is you say something to them and you have to go back on your word. You have to sit them down and say, I'm going to tell you, I'm about to tell you something that's going to make you mad. You're not going to like it. And I give you permission to be mad at me. I give you permission to talk about me. I give you permission to tell people how unfair I am. But I'm just going to tell you that you're not going to that party tomorrow night. But dad, you told, I know. But dad, you promised, I know. But dad, you can't do, you can't go back on, you've told us to keep your promises. You told us that you would do it, that you would never, I know, but here's the deal. I found out some things going on at the party and you're not going. Because I care about you more than I care about keeping my word. Listen, I'm, I'm going to sit you down and you're going to be mad about this. You're not going to like it. But remember when I told you that so-and-so could go with you? He can't. But you promised. I, I know I did. And you said that you had to keep, I know, but this is about you. And I love you. And right now, loving you is more important than keeping my promise and letting you get in a situation you don't need to be in. And what happens with this woman is the Pharisees are like, but God, you promised Jesus, if you know God, he said if she did that she wouldn't be able. And you said that she would be outcast. And you said that if she was like this, you would never be able. I know, but I love her. Look what he says. Jesus said to him, but by the way, it's just that thing. I point this out whenever we read this story, but I mean, Simon's talking to himself and Jesus is saying, I I can hear your conversation, whether it's mentally or you're talking to yourself. I got you. And now I'm in a conversation with you. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, go. Because Simon thinks he's got him dead to right. This is it. He's our prophet. He can't be be the Messiah. He wouldn't let her touch him. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One had 500 denarii that he owed and the other 50. When they both could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I guess the one who canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then I love this in verse 44, this, this, this note that Luke gives us, this, this particular detail that he puts in there with purpose. Verse 44, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, I love the fact that he directs his gaze right at this woman in question. And he gives her worth in that moment and says to her, 
I care about you. I see you. I recognize you. These other men didn't even know you were here. I have recognized who you are. Do you see this woman, Simon? Do you see her? Do you realize who she is? Have you looked at her? Or have you already determined in your mind that she's not worth looking at? Have you seen this woman, Simon? He said, I came in and you didn't give me what I needed. Water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. Wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but for the time I came in, she can't stop kissing my feet. You anoint my head with oil. You didn't do that, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins. Now listen to this. Which are many. He says, listen, I know her sins. I'm not unaware of what she has done. I am not unaware of her past. I am not unaware that she has lived her life contrary to what the law says. But I am aware of this. She has shown that she cares for me. And she wants a new life. I tell you, verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She has loved much. He who has forgiven little, loves little. Verse 48, and he turns to her and he says, your sins are forgiven. There are very few people in the entire book of the Bible, the entire Bible, who are less likely to be the subjects of a story in Scripture than this woman. Outcast, sinner, who breaks all the religious and cultural rules to encounter Jesus in his place. And the point of it all is this. The point that Christmas makes, the point that the manger makes is this, that he came into this world for you. And the thing that God thinks about when he thinks about you, so many of us immediately, we think of all the things we've done. In fact, there are some of you here right now that if you let yourself, and maybe you already have, you're sitting here and you can't help but think of the things you've done in the last week that you shouldn't have done, the things you've done this weekend that you shouldn't have done, the things that you have participated in, the things that you have done, the words that you have said, where you have been. You can't help but think about all that stuff. And you think in your mind, God's disappointed with me because he knows, he knows, he knows. And what God is thinking, is not I'm disappointed in you although I don't approve of what's happening or I wish you would go in a different direction what he's saying is I love you I care about you the manger the cross they prove that and I'm calling you back to myself Jesus made his way through the manger to get to you why did he come you me And not just as a collective group, you individually. He wants you to understand the love that He has for you. The love that He desires for you to understand is more than you can ever imagine. And it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. He loves you. He takes this woman. He saves her, forgives her. Those at the table begin to talk about themselves. Who is this to even forgive sins? He doesn't even talk to them. He just looks to her and says... Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, understanding there is go live your life in the light of the fact that you have been loved by God, even though the rules didn't say you were supposed to be. I can almost imagine Simon looking at Jesus when all this was going on and saying to him, but you promised God said. 
Are you breaking your promise? Are you breaking your law? And it's a reminder that throughout Scripture, then the New Testament, Jesus comes and on a time when everybody's getting mad that he's breaking laws, apparently. He says, listen, don't you realize that the law was not, we were not made for the law, the law was made for us. In other words, what he's saying is, God didn't have a bunch of laws out there and say, whoa, I need some people for this. That God loved his people and said, I need to have some ways to help them to live in the most excellent way. And I'm going to give them some laws. But when the moment that law begins to thwart who we are in Christ, then we have to say, what are you trying to do? And the moment it squashes mercy, it is no longer the law that God intended. What he wants you to know more than anything today, we're moving towards Christmas. Christmas is this week. There's so much stuff going on, you could miss it in a moment. But don't miss that the whole point of the manger is you. God's love for you. Maybe this Christmas it's time to let go of the disappointment that you have in your own life and to give it to God and allow yourself to become the person He intends for you to be. Let's pray together.